Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today I have a very special guest, someone who writes such insightful blog posts about saving investing that it will make you really into superannuation, I promise. And this is um, Aussie Doc Freedom. Welcome, Aussie Doc Freedom. Thank you, Serena. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It is honestly my pleasure. So Aussie Doc Freedom is a specialist doctor and she is a single high-income family. So basically, she's the main income earner in her family. She blogs at Aussie Doc Freedom about her financial independence journey. And like me, she is also a contributor to the Aussie Fire book produced by Curla. So she's got lots of insightful things that she writes about. Aussie Doc Freedom, there was a time, or maybe it still happens, I don't know, but certainly when I was growing up, there tended to be a bit of a trend where parents wanted their daughters to marry well. They wanted them to marry a doctor. I don't know if that was in your upbringing at all. It wasn't necessarily in mine because my mum was a businesswoman herself, but certainly I could see other friends, parents sort of pushing them to marry well, to marry a doctor. And that was sort of almost seen to as a pathway to set people up. Marry a doctor and you'll be sort of set for life. You'll have financial security. Is that a sort of pathway for financial security? Is that enough, just marrying a high-income earner? Well, it kind of sounds like a hangover from about a century ago, doesn't it, really? It does. Newsflash, girls, that ladies can actually make their own fortune now and have their own career and set themselves up. So there's absolutely no reason to rely on, on, a, on a man. And uh, there's probably a few issues with trying to do so. One is that if you marry with that kind of expectation, then then you may well be very disappointed. Uh, marrying a doctor has, if you ask my husband, got quite a few issues associated with it. We rarely get out of work on time. Depending on the speciality, they can work a lot of hours um, and you may never see them. The thought of divorcing somebody and also co-parenting with somebody that you've married for for financial reasons, I don't know about you, but the sort of co-parenting with your worst enemy is my worst nightmare. So (laughs) choosing somebody you can get on with is probably the most important thing with marriage. The other thing, I guess, is that if if you were looking for a doctor as a spouse based on their potential income, then you actually have no idea what kind of income they're going to earn. There's doctors aren't just one bunch of people. There's a it's a huge range of careers from GPs, the extremely underappreciated GPs, and also public health uh, physicians that have only just recently come into the light, but are very poorly paid in comparison with the rest of the specialities. All the way up to surgeons and and other highly skilled. Are you going to marry a man and then pressure him into a higher paid career? And what if he wants to follow his dreams and do a PhD or go into research or do a fellowship, which is essentially living on next to nothing, I believe. So it's got a lot of problems. And I think we should look out for our spouse and find one that we love their attributes, that are the personality and can get on with them and help them achieve their dreams and, and vice versa. 
Wise words, really. And I would agree with you. A man is definitely not a financial plan. There's so many variables in there, isn't it? If it's someone that you're marrying just for the money rather than the love, it's could be potentially quite fraught. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's just a terrible way to start a marriage with that kind of expectation that uh, they've got a great income, so they will do. This gives you no chance, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. So what about being a doctor? So you're obviously a doctor yourself. How much do doctors in Australia earn? So you mentioned there's quite a wide variable depending on what they do, but what's the kind of variable that's there? The range is huge and it is actually quite difficult to pin down. So there's some data that's off the ATO, but because of the way that they bunch doctors and specialists, it's hard to know what a fully qualified doctor earns because sometimes the training doctors are included in that. And so between the data on the ATO and surveys online of different specialities talking about this, I've got a vague idea. So interns, which are first-year doctors that come straight out of university, earn about $70,000. And it does vary a bit depending on what area of the country, but it varies by probably five grand. And and they work very long hours, don't they? There was some case of a, a, a woman who suicided due to the long hours and pressure, I believe. Yeah, unfortunately, suicide is a big issue among the medical profession. There's a lot of pressure. They can work very long hours. We try, most areas will try and protect, particularly their very junior doctors, but they come out with extremely high expectations of themselves. A lot of type A, perfectionist type people are attracted to medicine. They work hard. They have extremely high expectations of themselves. And they always expect themselves to do everything perfectly, which is never, you know, it's just not possible. Mm, Especially when you're tired and working long hours. Mm, Yes, that doesn't help for sure. They come out, going back to the money, they come out in about 70,000. That increases if they decide to do training and move up through the ranks. For a fully qualified specialist, now that can take 10 to 15 years to get there after six years of medical school. That ranges from probably about 150000 all the way up to, in some cases, apparently about a million dollars for highly specialised doctors who have trained to do certain procedures, so surgeons and other proceduralists who have a very specialised skill that's in high demand. There's been quite a lot of media too about certain specialists who demand very high fees for surgeries that not everyone is willing to perform, that certainly they would not be performed in the public health system, so they have to be done privately. Yes, that's a very controversial area. I'm not a surgeon myself, so I don't really feel like I have a full understanding of whether the surgery that is offered is is always in the best patient's interest, but that, that is the controversy of whether it is and the amount of money that these people are paying to get that glimmer of hope in an otherwise fairly hopeless situation. That aside, and noting that interns don't earn so much when they're first out, in general, uh, most doctors are earning above a average wage. Is that a, a fair statement? Yes, it, it increases quite quickly from the first year and you're above average income, which is I believe about 80000 within the first two or three years. Yeah. So is it enough then just to have that high income? When we're talking about a quest to financial independence, having financial security, is earning that sort of income, being a doctor, is is that enough or is it not quite enough? Well, I think that's the assumption that causes a lot of problems, that the general public and high earners themselves think that if you earn 
several hundred thousand dollars a year, of course you're okay. You're going to have your retirement savings and be able to afford anything you like. But actually, if you take a low-income earner who has to, has to spend 90% of their income and manages to save 10%, they're doing pretty good. But 10% is going to take an awfully long time to be able to save up for retirement and reach financial independence. If you have a high earning specialist who is also spending 90% of their income because everything gets upgraded, the wine gets upgraded, the dinners out get upgraded, the clothes, the car, the house, every element of their lifestyle can get gradually inflated and they end up ending spending 90% of their income and saving 10%. Again, it's going to take an awfully long time to reach financial independence. And over the years, I think lots of people have been shocked when they're getting close to retirement and actually finally have a look, having assumed for all that time that it's going to just work out, that actually they haven't done enough and they haven't planned. Because of course, unlike the low income earner, they can't survive on the government pension because they don't know how to live on that amount of money. They sort of think of the minimum acceptable standard of living as being much higher than most other people. That's only their mindset, but it will keep them in in work maybe for years after they don't really want to be because they just can't see how you could live on less than they already are living on. Yeah, this is a real trap. And I know we were talking before, I used to work in foreign affairs. And so essentially, I was a public servant. Not super high income, definitely higher than the average income in Australia, but not super high. But the trick is that when you are constantly mixing with very high wealth people, which you often are in that that role, you're often meeting very unique people, you sort of get into this sense that this is kind of normal and there's a lot of pressure to spend a lot in terms of what you wear and the car you drive and where you live because everyone you're working with is sort of doing that, keeping up with the Joneses. Do you feel that same sort of pressure or do others feel that same sort of pressure to keep up with the Dr. Joneses? Are you constantly around people who spend a lot of money? I think that is a big issue, particularly for younger doctors coming up that maybe haven't developed a sense of self yet and are still sort of finding their way. In the bigger cities, I think it's a a bigger issue, tends to be a bit flasher in terms of lifestyle and it's quite unconscious you know they're not intentionally keeping up with Dr Jones but it it just becomes everybody's normality of driving a luxury car you wouldn't buy a second-hand Toyota or just average car because everybody around you has a decent car where you shop for clothing and things like that expectations just just adapt very gradually and without you even realising it. And, and that's why people don't realise that they can't spend less. I haven't really fallen into that trap too much, but I'm in much less of a flashy area. And there's a lot of things that just don't appeal to me. And I guess that's why I like the blog, because I discovered the financial independence community and realised that I wasn't the only weird one who just didn't see much point <laughs> in buying a BMW or other things like that. I, rather save the money or use it for things that I really value and that give me a lot of joy. You don't talk about savings and investing and particularly frugal living with your colleagues in the medical profession. Not a great deal. I think money has been particularly taboo in the medical profession. I would actively avoid talking about saving money 
around my <laughs> colleagues because if you do mention something like that they tend to look at you as if you've grown a second head <laughs> occasionally investing now is coming up as a bit of a conversation and and that's being helped by conversations online so it's not just your immediate colleagues it's people that you that have self-selected to be in a group that has an interest in investing and then the conversation gets going and then it has spilled over to work a little bit because those individuals sort of identify each other and realize there are others around that are interested in that kind of thing. Yeah, social media is wonderful for being able to connect people with tribes, isn't it? I mean, I know there are downfalls to social media, but certainly a real benefit is that you can you can meet with people who share the same passions that you do. In my case, you know, I was frugal for many years and didn't talk about how I was wearing op shopped clothes to work or to work functions, but when you connect with your tribe on social media, you can talk about those things with people you've never met before. Yes, they have completely different, you know, they have the same values as you. And things like a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues would be proud to drive a a luxury car like a Mercedes or a BMW, whereas my brain obviously works very differently because I'd actually be embarrassed to be seen in something like that. And that probably comes partly from coming from a lower income family, which wasn't a really low income family, but my extended family, a lot of them are quite low income and struggling. And I, it feels like showing off to me. That feels very different. And some of the conversations online have realized, I've realized that other people do feel a bit like that as well, that sort of showing off wealth and flashing it about is just not something that we find very appealing. It's a funny thing, isn't it? I remember when I was in Taiwan and I was pregnant with my second child and an obstetrician who was quite famous and everyone said, you should get this guy to help you deliver your baby because he's really famous. And they also said, oh, he does so well. He drives this, whatever it was, luxury vehicle. I think it was a, a Mercedes or something like that. Some kind of sports car. I can't even remember what it was. But I actually met him once and, you know, I just didn't get on with him at all. Like there was no rapport there. And yeah, I sort of thought, look, you've got to get away from this famous doctor syndrome. Is he relating to me as a patient? Am I relating to him as a doctor? Is he someone that I really feel comfortable going with me on this journey? And the answer was no. And I really didn't care what car he drove. It seems to be something that for some patients is a big deal, that status of having the status doctor. Mm. I think that probably depends a lot on speciality, though, because I think I can see if you're a private plastic surgeon, if you drive, if you drive a 10 year old Toyota Corolla, it's actually probably not going to be good for business. And you probably do need to show some trappings of success because that's the way people judge you in general. But for the rest of public health employees, GPs, I don't, I don't think that really relevant at all and for an obstetrician absolutely if you're having someone in the room while you're giving birth to your baby you, the most important thing is one they're safe and then that you feel comfortable with them and you trust them mm, exactly so it's they're, they're whole different kind of conversations now let's get into investing so what's your preferred investment vehicle do you have something you prefer or is it a, a mix I do like a mix. Um, I have to say I am quite keen on super as much as that's a bit dull. <laughs> but I'm actually really grateful for super because at 25, I would not have started saving for retirement. And the government made me. I'm actually really grateful for that. So they uh, obviously made me start putting super away through my employer contributions. 
which means that I got a head start when I when I just wouldn't have even thought about it at that stage of life. And there were a lot of competing um, financial demands at that stage of life when you're buying a house and you're setting up and you're planning for kids. So there's never the money to save naturally. So I, I'm actually really grateful that they made me save that money. I like super because it's because of the tax savings, really. I do think I know that it puts off a lot of people in the financial independence community because you can't access the money till preservation age. And we are quite concerned about the government changing the rules all the time and whether the preservation age is going to change. And that's definitely a concern, but it's, I would say, not a reason to neglect it because in, in a way, particularly when you're starting out, it's actually a way to force you to stick to your savings habit because you can't get it out. You can't just impulsively decide you're going to go and go on holiday or something instead with the money. So that sort of protects yourself. So we've got, you know, obviously I've been accumulating super for a while and I was really watching, not an investor yet, but already with an interest in finance and investing in 2008. I was a junior doctor and I saw my colleagues freaking out as the stock market tumbled um, mm. and values of people super were halved in the end. And I thought, that sounds pretty scary <laughs> when you're um, relying on that for a retirement income. So that's largely why property really appeals to me as an aside, you know, as complementary to super, because it's not going to just halve rapidly. So even if the stock market misbehaves, which it will do, of course, rental income should be should be reasonably protected and, and stable. And even if there is a problem because the economy goes down or whatever, it's probably not going to be all exactly the same time. So it's going to soften the blow a little bit, I think. So I quite like property. Of course, um, property was affected during COVID. We're seeing now a huge boom or the start of a huge boom. I mean, no one really knows. No one predicted the boom either. And so who knows what's going to happen. But last year, a lot of landlords were affected for particularly through tenants who required relief during COVID. Many have, you know, lost rental income as a result. So it's not fail safe, but then shares weren't fail safe either. So like nothing's fail safe, but I agree when you've got a mix and things that are generally on different cycles, it does provide a bit more protection, I think. Yeah, there's no, there's no completely safe investment, is there? And unless you're going to go for government bonds and then uh, it's going to take you a long time. It's not going to end very much. So depends what government really. I mean, Australia is fairly stable, <laughs> but there was even a time, that, that's not even. I know there was a time when great. US Treasury notes weren't that good either. So you know, it depends largely on the country and what's happening. I have invested a little bit outside super as well, largely because I want the opportunity to retire or do humanitarian work unpaid. And you know, once the kids have grown up and I've got that freedom to move about a bit. Before preservation age, I'd like, if I want to do something and it doesn't involve being paid or it pays, involves being paid very little, I want that freedom to do it. Well, that's the thing with superannuation. I mean, the tax benefits are great and perhaps you can speak to some of those benefits of superannuation in a minute. But the liquidity is an issue. This year, over the last year, a lot of people were able to access early superannuation, which was very controversial. But in general, unless you've got something major that happens, you can't touch your superannuation until preservation age, and that's a problem for some people. Yeah, and I recognise that absolutely. I just uh, would encourage people to not completely discount it. Think about using some of those advantages if you can. Uh, we saw with people withdrawing from their super this year, 
it, a lot of it wasn't used very wisely, unfortunately, which is a bit of a disaster. It was intended, obviously, to rescue people and give them short-term financial relief so that they can continue living and buy food and all the rest of it. But a lot of it was spent at casinos and other things that, uh, that people just obviously haven't realised the big impact that that's going to have on their future. Yeah, it is. It's a, a tough one. Um, superannuation is the main plank of my financial independence strategy. In my case, my husband and I are both public servants or I'm a former public servant and we have particularly good superannuation schemes. But I had a second very small superannuation account and I actually decided to take some out more to trial how the system was than anything. And I was slightly shocked by how easy it was, I must admit. I only took a very small amount out and put it on the mortgage so it didn't get spent at the casino or, or anywhere <laughs> else. But when I told people I knew that I'd done that, I was amazed about how many of them opened up about how much they had taken out of their own superannuation schemes. And particularly for young people, what became apparent to me was the distrust that they had about superannuation their fear that the government would increase the preservation age to a, an age where they would never use the funds. And the sort of feeling was, well, at least I'll get to use it if I take it out now. Mm. And, and I completely understand that suspicion and they do change the rules all the time. And it seems very likely they will increase the preservation age as time goes on. But the government have to keep it advantageous for people to put money in super or they're not going to with more and more of the population working casual work and not having to actually contribute to super. I think there's always got to be an advantage for putting money in super. So I don't think it will all be eroded. So I can hear from your accent there, you're obviously not from Australia originally. So I'm guessing you didn't grow up talking about superannuation around the kitchen table. Was it hard to get your head around Australia's superannuation scheme? And what do you see as the benefits? You talked in some blogs about some particular schemes. Is it something that is really quite strong when you compare, say, to other country schemes? So I was 25 when I came over and the way I chose how much to put in my super was that I was presented with lots of forms by the administration of the my employer and I had to tick the box. And so I asked the random admin lady that was there, what's this all about? And she said, most people tick that one. And that was really all I knew for quite a while. Um, and it was a, a, a little confusing. And definitely that was my attitude of, oh, so they take money out of your pay and put it into super and you can't access it to 60. So I can't do anything about that. That's not my money anyway. It's just like a tax is really what I thought about it, which is at that age. And that's obviously changed as I have got older. Yeah, that's that's really, and I don't think it was that complicated. It was just, again, I just dismissed it as, well, I can't get that money, so it's pretty much not mine. I don't need to worry about it until I got sort of a little bit more interested a few years later. Salary sacrifice is a way that a lot of employees can reduce their tax, and that I found very confusing. There are different rules all over the country depending on where you're working, which employer you've got, and there's all this talk about FBT and non-FBT, and it all seems very confusing. And I think that puts people off a lot of just getting it done. And it certainly did for me for a while. So on the on the blog, I've often just 
tried to try to make it a little more simple and just say don't worry about it too much just put your rent or your mortgage into it and you'll not pay tax on that money just get the form done and that's a pretty significant saving you touched on salary sacrificing for contributing to super and where that's available from your employer it is really very significant it is less significant when you're a low income earner having crunched the numbers but when you're a high income earner it really does significantly reduce your taxable income. So basically, you are getting money for nothing putting it into super. And then, of course, when it goes into super, it's taxed at 15%. And then, you know, unless there are are changes, it's not taxed generally when it comes out. So it's a very tax-effective scheme. It is. For new graduates, you can end up having to pay more of your HEX debt back because that's based on your income. But I, I still think it's worthwhile and it's really good once you're I think I worked it out, it's about over 90000 I can't quite remember whether when it becomes more worthwhile. Yeah, but certainly for high-income earners, you really need to have superannuation as part of your strategy. It's so important. If you're not taking advantage of those tax advantages, you're kind of crazy, basically. Yeah, absolutely. You're just giving money away as extra tax, really. <laughs> now, one final question. Do you have a frugalista tip? My frugalista tip, and I'm, I have to confess to not being that frugal but it's really thinking about efficiency with things so I like to save time as well as money so I really try to think about efficiency so often often with saving money it doesn't really seem worthwhile like you might take the kids out and buy them an apple juice and sausage roll or something and it costs a few dollars and it doesn't seem significant but Actually, these little expenses, they do add up over time and and that's what sort of drains the money out of a lot of people's budget. So actually thinking about percentage savings. So when you're buying a little pop top of apple juice at the cafe and it costs $2 or you go to the supermarket and you buy a packet of eight for $2, you're paying eight times as much for that pop top. And yes, it's only $2, but if you keep making that decision over and over again, you waste a large percentage of your spending just on being inefficient. So thinking about that kind of percentages rather than actual dollar amounts makes it seem more worthwhile. And I I like working on efficiency throughout life. So things like if you're cooking, you're putting the oven on, do batch cooking, cooking some snacks for tomorrow's lunchboxes or and multiple meals at a time, bulk cooking, say, four meals and freezing the rest of them. It just saves so much time, um, mental energy, thinking about what you're going to eat, and it's, it's cost-effective as well. So that's very efficient. And the other thing is just when you're out driving, if you've got to run an errand, I always try and sort of stack things together so you're in one area of town and you don't spend half your day off driving back and forwards because you've got everything done in one go hopefully and driven into town once. I hear you re-efficiency when you're a busy person you find ways to bend time don't you? Yeah yes you do (laughs) try and maximize it uh, as much as you can so that you get a little bit of time off hopefully at the end of the day. Hopefully. (laughs) So thank you so much for being my guest today. Where can my listeners go to find your writing and your blog? So please come and visit aussie.freedom.com It's really geared towards high-income professionals, but it's got a lot of information about super, which I I think is poorly explained elsewhere. So I try to break it down to make it make more sense for people. So come and have a read. Mm, Definitely a lot of very good value information that is there. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, also please leave a review and join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group and participate in discussions on this and other topics. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. Star